Thank you, brother. Brothers and sisters and visitors, if you would, open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Once you've found your place in the Scripture or your Bible apps, uh, physical or otherwise, please stand to your feet. Matthew chapter two, uh, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, right before the New Testament book of Matthew. Our Heavenly Father has said this by His Spirit through the prophet Malachi. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that is your word. We have heard you speak, and I pray by your spirit that you would illuminate the text for us. Help us to understand what you have inspired what you meant to say to Israel back then. And Lord, help us to take that and pull from it the things that we need for now. For your message is timeless. Lord, I'm reminded of Jesus asking Peter if he loved him. And he answered yes. Jesus told him to feed his sheep. And Jesus repeatedly asked him if he loved him. And he repeatedly said yes, and Jesus kept pointing to his sheep, then feed my sheep. And Lord, there, in my estimation, I can love my brothers and sisters no more than to feed them your word, than to point them to you. And so, Lord, this is my act of worship. Why you would allow any human to do this is beyond us. But Lord, I pray that you would Feed your sheep now, Lord, that they would be nurtured, that they would be rebuked if there is sin in their lives. God, that they would know you and know of Christ and know of salvation greater, Lord, so that they may worship you and adore you and that they may grow into sheep who are able to lead others to green pastures. So, Lord, we love you, and I pray that as your people, we would listen to your word, even as I speak, Lord, that I would listen as well and hear you speaking by your word, that we all would be unified around your message, around what you have to say, that it would not be altered from its true meaning so that we may be sanctified by your truth and made to be more like Christ. The very purpose for which we were created, Lord, we fell from that purpose, and it's the purpose for which Christ came and lived perfectly and died and rose again to restore us into the perfect likeness of who you are. So we pray that you would do that by your word now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Church, please be seated. The sermon is titled, God Loves Marriage. God's Love for Marriage. This is part one. We'll be talking about uh, the next portion of the text next week, which also deals with marriage. But God's Love for Marriage, part one, covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness. When I was in seventh grade, I was hit with the news that my parents would be splitting up. They tried to make their marriage last a little longer, but in eighth grade, my mom served my dad a restraining order and had him removed from our home. And it was an ugly divorce, and it wasn't finalized until I was in 11th grade. It just drug on and on and on. My mom and dad, at that time, they both badmouthed each other, and so I ended up hating both of my parents because of the things that they were telling me about the other. Many nights, I remember vividly crying myself to sleep, looking out of my bedroom window into the sky, asking God for help, to help our family. Sometime later, my mom moved in with an unbeliever, and he lived with us, and they eventually got married. And for me, those were very miserable years in high school. 
They eventually divorced, and not long ago after, after that, my mom and another unbeliever began to live together, and it had been that way for 20, 22, 23 years until this past Friday, a couple days ago, she, she got married uh, to this man. My mom, I love her, she would claim to be a believer, but by her own admission, she told me that she has a rebellion problem towards God. She said, it's in my nature, and really it's in all of our natures to be rebellious to God. But she admitted that she doesn't obey God because she rebels against him. And that's, that's hard for a, a son to hear, a son who's a pastor, who encourages people to not rebel against God. It was during these ugly years, though, that God used the church, my church family back in National City, California, a city within San Diego County. He used this church to shape and affect my life. It was the place where my heart was ministered to during these formative years. My youth pastor and his wife's home, it was a refuge for me. They picked me up for church. They took me home as often as I needed. Jenny was my girlfriend at the time, and her grandmother also gave me rides to church as often as I needed. I was there with God's people on Wednesday nights, Friday nights, Saturday mornings, Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, without fail, every week. Part of it was because I hated being at home, but the other part was because I loved being with the people who were helping me during these years. They ensured that my brother and I got to go to summer camp every year because we didn't have the money to, because my dad wasn't paying child support or alimony. So we got to go every year to Camp Pondo for free, where we take our kids to winter camp. In fact, it was their love and their care for me that made me give up my dream of being a heart surgeon, and instead I chose to be a pastor. I gave that desire up my senior year. There was a day in my life when I said, I want to make a difference in the lives of teenagers, like they've made a difference in my life, so I'm changing my careers. And man, that did not go well with anybody <laughs> in my family or my friends at school. I wanted to be a pastor to make sure that people know of Christ, but I also wanted to help teens that were hurting in God's family. And this is why, if you don't know, this is why I advocate for teen ministry so much, and I love student ministry with a passion. If you ever see me get overzealous or protective of student ministry, that is why, okay? If you want to, want, want to know why I love Camp Pondo so much, it's because it reminds me that Calvary Baptist Church back in National City decided to care for me when I was a teen stuck in the middle of my parents' divorce and their sin in the late 80s and early 90s. I fully believe what God, what I should say, I, I fully believe what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. With all my heart, I look back at that situation and I can say that 100%. As I look at my families, um, my family, and it's in contrast to the families that I've grown up with in church, I can see a huge difference. I saw what it looked like to remain faithfully in covenant to God through that church versus what it looked like in my family to abandon fellowship with God and to abandon covenant with God. That's, it was a huge contrast in my life. My family that was once faithful to God, no longer faithful, no longer going to church, no longer serving God, just living in their own sin and hate and misery, and a bunch of other mess that I won't get into. And over here, families that loved God, loved each other and their spouses, and remained faithful. And when I got married at the age of 20, to my wife, who was at that time 19, right now I'm in my mid-20s, all right? Um, <laughs> times two, <laughs> all right? I was 20 and Jenny was 19. I decided back then that I did not want to go down the sinful road that my parents took in abandoning God or my spouse. That isn't to say that our marriage hasn't had uh, any problems or that it's been perfect because it hasn't. It's had some very difficult, very sinful times. It's put our family, uh, our bonds to its limits. But by God's grace, we've recovered from our own sin. We've remained married and committed to each other this August, it'll be 28 years. And I think most of us married people know that 
we know what it's like to have a marriage that's tested to the brink of destruction. We've all felt those moments. And if you haven't, then I thank God that you haven't had to go through anything like that. But the normal sinful lives that we bring, sometimes it, it, it's just stress. And you're like, oh, man, we're barely hanging on by a thread. And then God just brings it back together. If you haven't had to endure something like that, praise God. At the heart of our passage today in Scripture is covenant faithfulness to God and to his people. While the next couple of sermons will deal with marriage, the issue is really that God's covenant people have broken covenant with him by their betrayal of one another. And this betrayal of one another, it came in the form of unbiblical divorces and unbiblical marriages. That is, God's covenant people, Israel, was they were marrying people outside of the covenant, outside of this community. And so over the next couple of sermons through Malachi, we're going to talk about marriage. This may cause some pain in your life as we talk about uh, the divorces that were going on, the unbiblical marriages. And it's not intended to make anyone feel pain. But knowing that some of us have had divorced parents, or that some of us ourselves have been divorced, or that some of us have had struggles in their marriage, this might inadvertently bring up some pain. And it's not intended to. It's intended to show you the grace of God as we move through here, and it's intended to encourage and help us and warn us and a bunch of other helpful things. So as we move through Malachi, I want you to know that this, isn't, this really isn't a mini-marriage series per se, but marriage will be discussed. The topic of marriage is being brought up because God has some issues with the southern kingdom of Israel, which is called Judah. At one point, the 12 tribes split into two, 10 northern tribes, two southern tribes. The 10 northern tribes got annihilated under the judgment of God uh, through the Assyrian Empire. And all that remains is the two southern tribes, Judah and, uh, and Benjamin, um, I believe my brain is uh, not functioning right now. They are one tribe. And they are called Judah, the southern kingdom. And at times God refers to them as Israel. This is all that remains of them. In Malachi, God has been addressing problems that he had with Judah. Again, they're also called Israel. Israel, or Judah, had been under Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Quite a long time. And that was their punishment for having turned away from God and broken covenant prior to all this. Well, eventually they start turning back to God. And the Persians come along and they defeat the Babylonians. And the Persian rulers for some time now have permitted the Israelites to return to their homeland because they had been removed from it. The temple was destroyed where they worshiped God. But now they're allowed to go back to their homeland. They're allowed to rebuild this covenant life with God. And so... When we read Malachi, we see that they're rebuilding everything. Okay? The foundation of the temple has been rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. The priesthood is rebuilt. The sacrificial system is functioning. And the people themselves are being built into God's community people through the preaching of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai, and Malachi. But, as always is the case with Israel... They seem to turn away from God, and they seem to continue to violate God's covenant that he made with them at Mount Sinai when Moses was their leader in the wilderness. And this is the occasion for Malachi's prophecy. God has several problems and complaints against Israel, and we've already touched on two of them in previous sermons. I'll address them briefly. The first complaint that God has with them is that Israel does not believe that God loves them. But God does love them, and he proves that he loves them. And you can hear that sermon online at sermonaudio.com, and you can hear that, how it all relates to Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to go into much more than that. The second complaint that God addresses is his, uh, another problem with Israel. And he says the problem isn't that God doesn't love Israel. The problem is that Israel and the priests... They don't love God. That's the problem. And God proves that they hate him by showing that they have no zeal for him like former priests did. 
And we went over that, how former priests showed amazing zeal in the love for God. But these current priests don't, neither do the people. Instead, the, the citizens are bringing nasty sacrifices to the priests, and the priests are offering those dirty things to God. This pollutes the altar that they're sacrificed on, and thus it makes God look nasty too, because they were to bring holy sacrifices, clean sacrifices. And you can hear more of that sermon online as well, how it pertains to Jesus Christ. And the second problem was addressed over three sermons. Again, you'll hear how it pertains to Jesus. And so Malachi, in this small writing uh, that, that God gives to him, right? just so you know, Malachi's name means messenger. And so he has a message, and Malachi's addressing six problems that God has. Today, we're going to start the third problem with Israel. And again, we're going to see how this is connected to Jesus Christ. Because you might be thinking Jesus isn't mentioned in there, but Jesus is all the scripture pertains to him. And so we're going to get into that after we see how it pertains to Israel as well. So this third complaint is uh, that God has with Israel. It, it, it's about covenant faithlessness. Covenant faithlessness. They are not being faithful to the contract that God made with them. Our God, listen to this, our God is a faithful God. A God who keeps his promises, whereas Israel has proved themselves faithless to God and to each other. And the area where they have failed is in their marriages. We're going to see in Scripture that God loves marriage, why he created marriage, and why he's arranged it with parameters and rules. So sinful marriages will be the occasion that leads God to speak to Israel through Malachi. And so the first thing we see in our text in verse 10 is that God's love for marriage is rooted in his covenant faithfulness to you. It's up there on the screen. That's a mouthful. Let me say it again. God's love for marriage is rooted in his covenant faithfulness to you. And we will see how that pans out and how that makes sense. Malachi 2.10 says, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So Malachi asked three questions in our first verse this morning. The first two questions are rhetorical questions that make the third question sting and hit home. So Malachi asks, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And the answer is yes and yes. They don't deserve answers, but those are the answers. We all have the same father, and he's the one who created us. That should be Israel's response. Now, please understand that God is addressing the Israelites here. This is not... God talking to the entire world. God is addressing the Israelites, not all of humanity. So this should not be taken to mean that God is the father of all human beings. That's not what he's saying. Those who do not belong to God in salvation are never said to be his sons or his children where God is their father. If you are not in covenant with God, you, nowhere are you ever called his son or his children or daughter. Instead, God is reminding Israel that they are his firstborn. Way before Malachi, way before him, in Exodus chapter 4, we see that the Israelites, they had been enslaved by the Egyptians, and God heard their misery. And God was going to set them free from Pharaoh so that they could go into the wilderness and worship God and worship the Lord. And in Exodus 4.22, we see God calling Israel his firstborn. So Malachi is addressing the Israelites, and he's saying, listen, here, all of us Israelites, do we not all have one father? That is to say, is not God the one who's given birth to our nation? Had Malachi meant that God was the father to all of humanity, then he would have said that by but he's using the word we because he's been addressing Israel as a nation, not the world in general. We, Israelites, have one father, correct? Yes. And has not one God created us? Yes. Again, here in regards to creation, Malachi is not talking about the beginning of time. He's not talking about Genesis 1 and 2. He's talking about Genesis 12. 
In Genesis 12, we find a guy named Abram, later called Abraham. Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldeans, and they worshiped the moon god, aptly titled Sin, S-I-N. That was the moon god. Abraham was not a worshiper of God at first. Even in Haran, the land where he later settled for a while, was known for its moon deities, its moon gods. You see, Abraham wasn't always a believer. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to leave his pagan gods and unbelieving roots from Ur and from Haran. God called him out of sin, out of paganism, and God was going to save this man and rescue him and redeem him. And in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, God promises, God makes a contract with, God makes a covenant with, those are all synonyms, with Abraham. In part of this covenant, God stated that he was going to make a great nation out of Abraham. This nation would be the nation of Israelites, right? the nation of Israel later we see. God promised them a special land. That's why we hear the phrase, the promised land, all the time. And God promised that through Abraham, God was going to bless the the entire world. All the nations of the world would somehow receive a blessing from God through Abraham. In prior sermons, I explained how this is all related to Christ, that Jesus is the great descendant of Abraham who died to save people from all nations, not just the nation of Israel. Okay, So way back in Genesis, this gospel thing that we know, the salvation through Christ is being preached in one way or another with small details and then growing details added to it. Eventually, Abraham... He has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob's name, all right, is eventually changed to Israel, okay? But Jacob, he has children by two wives that were sisters. You can read about that in Genesis. It's a pretty gnarly situation. Jacob has two children by two wives that were sisters. Not good, sinful, all right? It's not condoned just because it's in Scripture. Scripture shows the good, the bad, and the ugly, so we must never think just because it's in scripture that God is okay with it. God's just telling the truth of the situation. Okay. These women seem to have a competitive streak in them because when they're unable to have more kids by Jacob, they give to Jacob each of their women servants as additional wives to have more children with him. Not a good idea. Okay. So eventually Jacob has 12 sons from four wives. This is what happens when you don't believe the promises of God. You take matters into your own hands. They tried to create a great nation with their own sinful wisdom. There was no trust in the covenant of God that he made with Abraham. But nevertheless, God uses their sinful actions, and somehow he crafts good out of it. Jacob, again, is later renamed Israel, and now the seeds of the nation begin to form, which initially started with God's calling of Abraham into covenant with him. So when Malachi says, has not one God created us? The answer is yes. The nation of Israel would not exist had God not brought them into being. God created them. And while God is not the author of sin, he once again shows that by his wisdom and power, he will continue to uh, on with his plan to save people from all over the world. In spite of our sin, in spite of our determination to wreck his plan, he succeeds. And here we see Jacob with his four wives and their gross sin, that it will not destroy God's plan to create a people that will bring Jesus, the Savior, into the world. The people that will eventually, Israel, who eventually have a particular worship system designed to teach us about Christ and our need for him. So these two questions, they lead us to this rebuke of the third question. We Israelites have one father, right? Yes. And one God has created us all Israelites, right? Yes. Then why on earth... Are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Why are we faithless? Why are we breaking our promises to God and to each other? Why are we breaking agreement, breaking union, breaking contract, breaking covenant with each other? The word actually, uh, we're talking about breaking uh, covenant, uh, this breaking thing, the word actually means to deal treacherously with one another. So I want you to envision the, the people of Israel being savage with one another, dealing treacherously, betraying one another. They're supposed to be brothers and sisters, the people that they can trust, and here they are betraying each other. If there's anyone that you should be able to trust, it's God's people. 
but they're treacherous. So Malachi asks, why are you harming each other? We're supposed to be committed to each other because we have one father and creator, but we're not. Why? Why would you act like this? Why would you do this? We're faithless to one another. And in doing so, we profane the covenant of our fathers. Why do we, when he says profane it, he's saying, why do we pollute the covenant? This contract that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Why do we defile it? If you remember earlier in Malachi, the priests, they were profaning or polluting God's name. God says, you profane my name. You pollute my name. You make me dirty by the actions you do. You treat me as dirty. How? They say, how do we do that, God? He says, by polluting my altar, by defiling the altar, because you bring nasty sacrifices, sacrifices that are crippled and and lame and stolen and diseased, and you put them on the, the altar for me, and you offer them to me. That's a, that's a holy thing that you're supposed to be doing. God is saying the same thing about the covenant that he made with Israel. They're polluting it. They're defiling it. Why do we, Malachi is using we, make dirty and nasty the Mosaic covenant of our ancestors? How so? He says, by being faithless to one another and dealing treacherously with one another. Well, what are they doing? It's so bad. We'll get to that in a second. For now, let's make sure we get what Malachi is saying. God has called a people to himself and brought them into covenant with himself. A people, plural, not individuals, but people. He alone created his people. And those created people are in covenant with God, in promise with God, in contractual agreement with God. He saved them from Egypt, and now they were to live for him in worship. He's the king. They are the vassals. And these people are so intertwined Um, so intertwined with each other that to break covenant with God is also to break covenant with their fellow citizen. That's how unionized they are. To break covenant with God is to break covenant with each other and to be treacherous with each other. To betray God is to betray one another. You see, they were not in a personal relationship with God, but a corporate one. Do you hear that? They were not in a personal relationship with God, but a corporate one. You really need to get that because American Christianity, we have this notion that my relationship with God is personal, and actually it's not. Let me help correct your ecclesiology, your, your doctrine of the church. Okay? Like Israel is in covenant with God as a group, so too the church is in covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And it is a corporate thing. We are being built into a living temple. Does that sound like individual stones? Maybe at some point, but you're being unified into one living temple with Christ as the cornerstone. You are one stone and I'm another. Jesus is the cornerstone from which all other stones are aligned and built around, and we are cemented together into one living temple. This is the new covenant that God has brought us into through Jesus Christ. Because the old covenant was something else, and now we're in the new covenant. We are many members with one head, Jesus Christ. Is your body one? Are there many members of it? Yes. To get dismembered? Bad. You don't want your arm or hand cut off? I don't want any part of my body cut off. All right? Maybe my hair every once in a while, all right? But that's it. I don't, I don't want my nose cut off, my toes cut off. All right? None of that. Jesus is the head and we are the body. That's what scripture teaches. We are not in a personal relationship with God, but a corporate one. We are a holy nation. Not a holy individual. We are a church, which means called out ones. Plural. We are corporate. And we must remember that the new covenant of Jesus was first promised to Israel, was it not? It was first promised to Israel as a people. And we non-Israelites are grafted in. In Hebrews 8, speaking of the new covenant, which we are in, was first promised to Israel. We see that God says this, you will be my people. Hebrews 8 tells us that. Plural, not you will be my individuals. We are part of a community that God has created and called into the new covenant. Thus, he is our father. He is our 
creator, just like he's Israel's father and Israel's creator. I'm telling you this because the church at large has a poor, a poor understanding of what the church really is. They don't understand who they are for the most part. Our collective ecclesiology is poor. Again, ecclesiology is the study of the church. We are a holy nation, a body, a people, a community, a temple, a fellowship. Those are words that Scripture uses to describe us. The Apostle John, in his letter of 1 John, in the first few verses, uh, first few verses I preached a sermon on this. It was my very first sermon that I ever preached at Sovereign Way Christian Church back in 2013, okay? He and the other apostles of Jesus, they say this, we're proclaiming Jesus so that people can have fellowship with them. Pretend I'm the apostle John. I'm saying, I'm preaching to you so that you can have fellowship with me. You can have union with me, koinonia with me, communion with me, okay? And then John says, our fellowship is with the Father. Fellowship is not something you do. Even though we, oh, we're going to fellowship after church, that's a. It's like saying I'm going to, I'm going to body after church. You're going to what? I'm going to union after church. Those are nouns. What are you talking about? Fellowship is a noun. It's not a verb. It's a condition, a state of being. Fellowship means communion, which is a noun. Intimacy is a noun. Association, union, community, oneness. Those are all nouns. Communion or state of beings. Communion or fellowship is not something you do. It's what you are. Please hear that. Communion and fellowship, it's not something you do. It's what you are. You are a fellowship. You are a community. So to make it clear, being brought into communion with God is also to be brought into communion with other believers. That's what Scripture teaches. We are One in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. This is why we sing these songs. We are the family of God. We've been adopted. You see how Scripture talks about our plurality, not our individuality? And that universal oneness expresses itself in local churches because we can't get together with every Christian around the world. Okay, It's just not physically possible. Not now. One day, yes, not now. But these local churches come together in order to work together as one. And we should not be divided over petty things, just like Steve's been preaching in Romans. What an awesome series that has been as he's been going through Romans. Now, please get this information in this first point. So the application will be easy and clear. Okay? The third question Malachi asks is, why are you dealing treacherously with one another? Why are you betraying each other? Those that are united with Christ, why do you do that to them? Why do you make filthy and nasty the covenant that God made with our forefathers? The treachery they are committing is that of ungodly marriages. God gave rules for proper marriage in this covenant with Israel. And in violating the rules set forth in the covenant, they are breaking covenant and being faithless, not just to God, but because they're in union with God, they're in union with each other. So to break covenant with God is to break covenant with each other. And so I want you to see that God's love for marriage is bound up in the Mosaic Covenant in part, but not just the Mosaic Covenant that God made at Mount Sinai with Moses and the Israelites. God's love for marriage, follow me here, God's love for marriage is bound up in the New Covenant. What I mean is that God's love for marriage is rooted in his covenant faithfulness to you. This is our first point. God's love for marriage is rooted in his covenant faithfulness to you. Marriage is a contract. When I watched my mom get married at the courthouse this Friday, the judge that came up to perform the ceremony said, literally said, marriage is a contract that you should enter into with a serious mindset. Marriage is, I mean, when's the last time you heard that? That's what marriage is. It is a contract. And that is why you sign the marriage uh, document because you're, you're agreeing to do something. What? You're agreeing to do your vows. I will love you in all circumstances, for better, for worse, to rich or poor, sickness and in health, till death do us part. I contract to do this. Here's my signature. The other person, here's my signature. And then you have a witness. Yep, this is what they have bound themselves to. Marriage is a contract first and foremost. That sounds cold and harsh when you don't think of, oh, where's the romance? Well, that, that's part of it too. But it's first and foremost a contract. Okay? So, God's love for marriage is rooted, God loves marriage, but it's rooted in his covenant faithfulness 
to you. Marriage is a contract, a promise, covenant, agreement, union. It's there to portray God's faithfulness, not just to Israel, but to the church. Let's draw this out so you can see what I mean. God gave all of humanity marriage for a reason. Please listen to this. This is for your good. God gave all of humanity marriage. He didn't have to. He could have made us like the animals. No union, just reproducing. God created Adam and Eve. He brought them together in union, in covenant. He made them one. And this covenant or promise of marriage that they are in, all right, it, it was solidified by God. They promised by, I don't know if they did vows, but God brought them together. But our vows, they're promises of what we covenant to do, okay? And Scripture tells us that in Genesis 2, that God united this man and this woman in union, and they were one flesh, mystically unified by God. So God sees them as one flesh, inseparable, a union that cannot be broken until death, which God will separate them at that point. They were to cleave to each other in this union. And so God created humanity. He created sexuality. He created marriage, and thus he's entitled to say how it should be used. And he gave it for a specific purpose, which we'll get to in just a second. And so it is sinful, utterly sinful, to take good things that God has given us and created for us and say, I'm going to use it, God, for something else than what you intended it for. That's to make dirty something God made. Okay? What was God's intent? I'll tell you shortly. I want to keep you in mystery. That way you'll pay attention. God gave the marriage covenant to all of humanity. In Matthew 19, Jesus himself explains that man and woman were created by God. And God created marriage. And that it was brought together in this union, again, not to be separated by man, but God alone through death. Meaning that marriage is a covenant or a contract that is valid until you die between a man and a woman. And of course, we see in scripture, there's a couple rare cases where divorce is permitted, even though it's not uh, commanded There's a couple exception cases. We'll cover that in a following sermon. For now, we just need to see that marriage is between one man, one woman. The ideal scenario is lifelong covenant until death separates you. Covenant relationship. And God gave this to all of humanity. Now, here's the amazing kicker of marriage. Its ultimate purpose. Its ultimate purpose. All right? Because right now, it is a temporary union. It is temporary It's meant to help all of humanity understand this. It's meant to help them understand the eternal union of Christ and his church. The eternal covenant of Christ and his church. That is what the new covenant is. The new covenant, Jesus dying and rising again and sealing it with his blood. This contract that he makes with people who put their faith in him as they repent of their sin and turn to him as the Savior and as their Lord. They are in covenant with God. And that union with Christ goes on forever, forever. The new contract, the new covenant, the new promise is about Christ dying and rising again to save sinners. It's about him putting his spirit in us so that his law is also inscribed on our hearts so that we'll never break covenant with him. Just like Israel did the opposite. They repeatedly broke covenant. And the new covenant promises very different things. It promises that we're not going to be able to do what Israel did in former times, which is to turn our backs on God ultimately. So the Spirit is put in us, His law is put in our hearts so that we want to obey God. And so now we are forever connected to Christ, never ever, ever, ever able to be separated. What can separate us from Christ? Nothing. His covenant and promise in the new covenant is forever. Again, it's different than the old covenant. And brothers and sisters, that's why God gave human marriage between man and a woman. When done correctly, marriage, it pictures the husband's supposed to love the wife like Christ loved the church. And the church is supposed to love, or the wife is supposed to love her husband like the church worships and adores Christ. That's what your marriages are supposed to portray. How did Christ love her? The church, by dying for her sin and rising again to give her life forever so that the two of us, church and Savior, both of us, church and Christ, would dwell forever in the new creation, united forevermore in covenant, in union. And so scripture in Ephesians chapter 5, it tells us that marriage is meant to show Christ's union and covenant with the church. 
Ephesians 5 tells us the ultimate purpose of marriage in verse 32. That it was a mystery. Paul says, but I'm telling you that I'm speaking of Christ and his church, his bride. And scripture uses the language of Christ as the groom and the church as the bride. And there's going to be a marriage supper one day celebrating the forever union of Jesus and his church, husband and wife. That goes on forever. Earthly Marriages are temporary to point to that. And God gave that marriage to all humanity so that we would all have a picture of Christ's love for his people. And brothers and sisters, listen to this. That is why we are pro-marriage God's way. Because we are pro-gospel. Do do I need to say that again? That is why we are pro-marriage God's way. Because because we are pro-gospel. Not haters of others. Not standing in judgment over others who don't do things God's way. We are in looking at them like they're second-rate human beings because we were once under the curse of sin too. But we're pro-marriage because we're pro-gospel. We don't want anyone to mess up the human relationship picture that God gave to all of humanity so that they might understand the gospel better. Can you let that just change the way that you look at things politically in this world? Because you need to look at things not through a political lens or a party lens. You need to look at it through a Christ lens. God gave us marriage so that we would understand the gospel better. That's for your good. That's so that you don't have to go to hell forever. One more picture in this world to help you know that Christ died and rose again to save his bride. Do you hear that? I think the world sees us and they think that we're against divorce or anti-homosexual or anti-love when we say that we don't think uh, unbelievers should get married in whatever way that they want. They just see us hating on them, and that's not the case. They see us anti-whatever, when really we should be known for being pro-gospel. Of course, we know that sin is because God tells us. But the reality of the matter is that marriage goes much deeper than just our outward behavior. Marriage goes much deeper than that. There's an eternal reality that it points to, and that's why the outward form matters. Okay? It's not just a matter of two people loving each other. It's a matter of rightly portraying Jesus, the groom, loving the church, his bride. And that's why we promote biblical marriage, brothers and sisters. That's why we don't condone divorce for any old reason. Because marriage is meant to be a gospel picture. We take communion, right? That's a picture of the gospel. But would we ever say, man, I'm hungry. I can't wait to get my cracker and juice. Mm-mm-mm. Right? You're like, what are you doing? That's not the purpose of that. Right? That's a gospel picture. Today we're going to see Paris Roy get baptized. And we didn't tell her to bring a bar of soap and some bath salts. And we're going to fire up the bubbles, Paris. She's outside listening right now. Right? She had no idea that that's what baptism was about. It's not, right? You're like, what are you doing up there? Backstroke? This isn't a pool. It's a gospel picture of Jesus' death and resurrection, right? So too it is with marriage. We would protect those two ordinances, so that's why we protect marriage, because it's the gospel, and God has given us several forms of it uh, in picture form. And we must also tell the world what these pictures mean. We can't leave them to figure it out on their own. So God gives rules and love, and he loves marriage because it's born out of Christ's faithfulness forever to love his church and never be separated from her. So when we go back to Israel, we see that's why God hated their ungodly marriages because Christ is not married to an unbeliever, all right? As we're going to see in a minute, all right? It's born out of covenant faithfulness. That's why God has given us marriage because it ultimately points to Jesus and his church. That's why God gave marriage in the Garden of Eden. That's why God gave marriage rules in his covenant with Israel. That's why God forbids improper marriages. That's why God forbids improper divorces. It wrecks the picture of the gospel. But ultimately, God's love for marriage is because it shows his eternal union of Jesus and his church. Christ is forever faithful, forever loving, forever committed, forever in union with his bride. The union displays his nature. I'm faithful to my church, the Lord Jesus is, he says. So it displays his nature and his attributes. And we're called to imitate We are called to imitate the faithfulness of Jesus Christ because we were created to reflect his glory, right? So therefore, we must be faithful in our marriages and we must be faithful to Jesus because he loves us so much. And because we're in covenant with him, who are we also in covenant with? Each other. 
And you are not to be faithless to each other and sinful towards each other and causing division like the Israelites were doing here, breaking covenant with God. And so we move on to the second point. We see that God's love for marriage requires that we marry others in his covenant. Hear that. God's love for marriage requires that we marry others in his covenant. So if you're single and not married, doesn't matter what age you are, if one day you desire to get married, God's love for marriage requires that we marry others in his covenant. Look at verse 11. Judah has been faithless, ah, breaking covenant. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So what exactly has Judah done? How have they dealt treacherously with each other and thus broken covenant with each other and with God? Verse 11 says this, they've been faithless, not faithful, broken vows, broken covenant. Whatever this act is, God considers it an abomination in Israel and the capital of Jerusalem. It's in the nation. It's in Judah within the nation and even within the city of Jerusalem itself. From nation to tribe to city, the abomination is everywhere. This is a wicked thing and it's disgusting. That's what an abomination means. It's committing this treacherous act towards one another that, that, uh, that has defiled the covenant and they profane the sanctuary of the Lord. Now that word sanctuary can, is translated as holy. Sanctuary equals holy. Okay? Some of your Bible translations might say that Judah has polluted the holiness of the Lord. And that's certainly a valid way to look at it. Remember in Malachi 1 that Judah was polluting God's name? How? Offering dirty sacrifices on the Lord's altar to pollute God's name is basically to say that God was dirty, even though he's not. They were treating God as nasty by saying that he's only worthy of nasty sacrifices. They were defiling the holiness of God. Can you imagine, wives, if your husband brought you some weeds and said, I love you, honey. Like, that's what I'm worth? You must not think much of me. Do you hate me? Do you see now how dirty sacrifices show their unlove for God, their breaking covenant with God. They're dragging God into their filth, so to speak. So in verse 11, it could be said that Judah is profaning the holiness of God by their abomination. They're making God dirty, but God are treating him as such. But really, God has been using temple language in Malachi, sacrificial language in chapter 1. And so it seems consistent to say that Judah has polluted or defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. That word for holy can be translated as sanctuary. Now, are you guys warm in here, or is it just me? It's just me? Okay, just me. Somebody's pointing at me. I'm looking behind me to see me, all right? I don't know. That word holy can be translated as sanctuary. It doesn't render the application of the passage any different, okay? So let me, let me explain. Properly speaking, the sanctuary in the Old Testament was the tabernacle, the movable tent. The building that we're in right now is not a sanctuary, biblically speaking, Okay? This is just a building where God's people meet. The Lord does not live in this building. This building is not a holy place. It is not where sacrifices are done. In Scripture, the sanctuary was a movable tent that portrayed God's holiness and perfection. Wherever Israel went in the wilderness, the tent went with them as God did. And this tent was a holy place. Holy means to be set apart from sin. It was set apart from sin. The tabernacle was where God dwelt among the Israelites because because of their sin and uh, Israelite sin, they were thus separated from God in this tent. They could not have access to him. And in this tent, there were curtains further separating God's people from God. There were curtains further separating priests that could not get into God. And only one priest, one time a year, was allowed to go into the presence of God. And only after fully cleansing himself. And if he didn't do it right, he would get struck dead and they'd have to drag him out with a rope. Okay? That's how holy God is. And everyone is separated from the tabernacle in this thing that God has created where God would dwell. God is holy indeed, separate from sinners. So this tabernacle portrays the holiness of God. It's a holy thing. Eventually, this tent, this tabernacle or sanctuary, it became a permanent building, which we call the temple. Okay? The temple. And in Malachi's day, we see the second temple rebuilt because the first one had been destroyed. And they're rebuilding the second one. So this abomination that Judas committed has defiled the temple, the sanctuary of the Lord. God loves His holiness. Therefore, He loves this sanctuary, this building that pictures His holiness. And it shows through all the sacrifices how simple people can draw near to God. 
Through their clean sacrifices, they can draw near to God. This abominable act is this. What are they doing? Israel is marrying unbelievers. Israel is marrying unbelievers, those who don't believe in Yahweh. That's what Israel is doing. These Israelites are engaged now in idol worship with their unbelieving pagan spouses. And so they're, because of their love for God and it's dwindling, because they're now being aligned with other gods, they are now bringing nasty sacrifices to the true God. They see him as less lovable, less valuable. And this is how the sanctuary is defiled, the holy place of God. They think that merely by doing some outward spiritual exercise that they're going to earn God's favor and blessing. But the reality is that they are whoring around on God. They are cheating on him and being unfaithful to him. And thus they are being, but how so? By being treacherous to each other. They're trying to worship God and other gods at the same time. Because they have married pagan idol worshipers, they have now have followed suit. They have broken covenant with God and ruined the marriage picture by marrying people who do not love the true God. Let me ask you once again, is God in union with unbelievers? No, because they're in rebellion towards him. Only those who come to him for salvation and repentance are in union with Christ. Christ is not married to unbelievers who hate him and can't stand him. Therefore, marriage is, is to picture that if Christ is only married to believers, and that's who's in covenant with him, we are only to marry those who are equally in covenant with God. It's very simple. Understanding now that marriage is meant to picture that union, right? That's why we would tell Christians you shouldn't marry an unbeliever. It's not because we don't want people to, to love each other and care for each other. There's a bigger purpose, there's a gospel purpose behind it, and that's more important than your feelings or romance because that is temporary. Union with God is forever, so is hell. Do you get that? It's that serious that God loves you enough to say, do things the right way so that you'll have a picture to help, to help you point you to the gospel so that you'll be rescued forever. It's not God limiting you. It's God loving you and setting parameters that help you know him. These people are in full rebellion to God. And then they have the guts to ask God for pardon through their sacrifices. And they're not intending to repent of their sin because they're continuing to marry unbelievers and do pagan things. God, forgive me, but I'm going I'm to keep going back to my sin. Lord, here's another sacrifice. Please forgive me. Yeah, I know it's crippled and ugly and blind, but I'm going to keep doing what I do. Christ is not united to unbelievers. And so, again, we see them breaking union with God, breaking covenant with each other. They're not imitating what God said to do. In Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4, we see that God was going to give the promised land to Israel. And they were instructed to not marry unbelievers in that land because those unbelievers would turn their hearts, the Israelites' hearts, away from God and into pagan worship and into idolatry. That would ignite the wrath of God and they would be punished accordingly. As people that were in covenant with God, they could only marry people in covenant with God. And so the rule was to protect them from turning away from the Lord. God didn't want that influence there to turn them away from him because it would bring destruction. The, the, the abandoning of God is eternal hell. And so this rule is loving from God. The rule was given to protect the picture of marriage and how it shows the gospel and Christ's love for the church. And it was given to make sure that his people didn't turn from him. Now, church, the same is true for the new covenant we are a new covenant through, through Christ. Being in covenant, again, we are only to marry those who are in covenant with God. We should not marry unbelievers for the same reason in Israel. All right? Let me ask you the questions that the apostle asked. What fellowship or union does light and darkness have? What communion, intimacy do light and darkness have? What's the answer? None. Okay? So there's none. There's no union. Is there any partnership between right, righteousness and unrighteousness? Any partnership? No. So why would any believer ever marry an unbeliever? Or why would a believer ever enter into any sort of union with an unbeliever? What, let me ask you this. What union does the temple of God have with idols? That's the, that's the argument in Scripture. We, we are that temple. We are that temple. That nation, that people, that fellowship in covenant with God. 
So why would we unionize in a marriage to unbelievers if we're connected to God by covenant? Right? In covenant with God, we know how to imitate that covenant. So why would we marry unbelievers? He's not in covenant with those people. Marriage is meant to portray that union. So it ought not to be so, believers marrying unbelievers. This is very different, though, than when two believers, two unbelievers are married and one of them becomes a believer. Scripture says they're to stay in that state, to not separate, again, because God loves marriage. All right? But that's not what we're addressing at this point. We're just trying to help you see that in both Old Testament and the New Testament, Old Covenant and New Covenant, marriage matters to God. There's a spiritual danger that takes place with believers uniting to unbelievers. The danger is apostasy or abandoning the Lord. God's law is meant to protect you, to keep you in covenant with him, regardless of um, regardless if it was in the old or the new covenant. God's law is meant to protect the gospel reality of the marriage picture. Okay? I hope you see that I hope you see that God's rule for, for his rules for marriage are meant for your good and the salvation of the world. They aren't meant to ruin love, to limit your fun, confine you, or anything else like that. They are put in place out of God's love and desire to rescue sinners and to portray his everlasting faithfulness. Lastly, we see that God's love for marriage has serious implications. God's love for marriage has serious implications. In verse 12, we see the Lord saying this, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. What a severe consequence is mentioned here. This is what the Lord will do for those who deal treacherously with the covenant people of God. You got to see this. The Israelites had broken covenant with God by marrying and intermarrying unbelievers, intermarrying with unbelievers. They had just betrayed God and each other. They're attempting to engage in the worship of God through sacrifices, but they also worship idols. They have forsaken God and each other for other gods and sinful marriages. In short, they've gone back to the world. This is the curse now. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob. That's referring to Israel here. In other words, may God remove from the dwelling place of Jacob. May he remove them from that dwelling place. If you're going to defile my sanctuary and my temple and break covenant with me by offering dirty sacrifices and getting married to pagan people, if you're going to do that and pollute me, my holiness, my sanctuary, by aligning with foreign gods, the place where I live, then I will cut you off from the place where you live. That's the punishment. Who's going to get cut off? The ESV says, the descendants of the man who does this. Now that phrase, descendants of the man, is a tricky little phrase. Normally like to get into little tiny things like this, but... That, that phrase means to awaken and to respond. The, the descendants of the man who does this, that, it's, not that, it's not accurate word for word. The phrase literally means the Lord will uh, cut off from the tents of Jacob, and then the phrase in Hebrew is to awaken and respond, which is weird. To, the Lord will cut off from the tents of Jacob to awaken and respond. What does that mean? It's a peculiar phrase, and it's meant to be a merism, or a phrase that means like high and low. Man, I searched high, I searched low. What do you mean? I searched everywhere. It's meant to cover everything. Man, I've eaten everything. I've been to every continent from A to Z. It covers everything in between. Okay? To awaken and respond is a phrase that means like the one who is just hardly alert to the one who is fully able to respond. It's a merism like those things, and it covers everything in between. And so really, the phrase is meant to, to say, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever it may be, regardless of whoever the descendant is, whoever it may be. And so what's the point? The point is that improper marriage to unbelievers by the Israelites, it means covenant breaking with God and his people. The result is excommunication. The result is excommunication. Abandonment of covenant life by the Israelites, was cause for removal from God's people. This was part of Israel's covenant with God. To marry someone who worshipped a pagan god was to, in effect, forsake God. This was what their covenant entailed, so God would then cut them off from himself and from those who remained faithful, as these treacherous abandoners would be removed from blessing and from dwelling amongst the people of God. So too, to abandon covenant life in the church life To abandon the community of God is cause for removal from the people of God. That's not something that we like to hear. But listen to this. right? For Israel, it could have been any sin that caused them to break covenant with God. 
in that case and at that time, it happened to be in holy marriages. Nevertheless, it's not as if this was the only sin that could have brought on this curse from God. It is the fact that they abandoned God, period, and his people. And this was a sin that they were guilty of in the Old Testament. When we fast forward to the New Testament, the New Covenant, we see the excommunication is something that Jesus believed in and required uh, of his people. Okay, In Matthew 18, Jesus presents us with this imagery that he has a hundred sheep. And what happens if one of them goes astray and wanders off into danger? He will not let that person, if he's in covenant with his sheep, he will not let that sheep go. He will go and get them, right? And bring them back to the fold. Right after that, Jesus explains this process of church discipline. Listen, when you got a church, a group of believers, and one of them sins against each other, they start to wander off and live a sinful life. You're to confront them. And if they don't listen, you get two or three witnesses and you go along and you appeal to that brother to repent of their sin. And if they don't repent of their sin, now you bring it before the church. And then you have the whole church plead with them to come back. If Jesus is the head and we are the bodies, he is using his members to go get his sheep and bring them back. Which Jesus says, if they are my sheep, I will get them back. Because in the new covenant, again, he puts a spirit in his law in our hearts so that we can't break covenant with him. It's impossible for us to continue running away from God forever. Eventually, if we are Jesus's, he promises to pull us back in and reign us. So if someone continues to go that way and they're unreinable and you can't bring them back, what have they done? They have dealt treacherously with the people of God, have they not? And Jesus says in Matthew 18, at that point, if the entire church has done their very best to pull them back into God's fellowship and covenant with his people, and if they won't come back, you are to remove them. You are to excommunicate them and cut them off from the people of God. That is to serve as a warning to those people that it is dangerous to be out of covenant with God. They might be a true believer. They might not. We don't know. Jesus says, treat them as a Gentile or tax collector, which means treat them as if they are not in covenant with God. And perhaps handing them over to Satan in that way, putting them back in the world's bucket of people, they will realize, oh my goodness, I need to be saved by Jesus, and they will turn back to God. But I promise you, Jesus doesn't lose his sheep. He says he will not lose any. So if it appears from human perspective that we've lost a sheep, that really means that they just might not be a sheep of Jesus, only acting like one or pretending to be one. And so scripture speaks of removing people from God's community when they betray and sin against and will not repent and come back to the family of God. That is the intent of church discipline and excommunication. The intent is restoration, not humiliation, not isolation. In Israel, we've seen them breaking covenant with God, and it's cause for removal from the community. So, too, in the New Testament, it's not any different, okay? It's not any different. We must not deal treacherously with God's people. We must not break covenant with each other. We are a people, not individuals. We are a group, not a person. To betray God's people and to not repent is to break covenant, with, which is cause for excommunication, okay? That's the way God has outlined this And this is why he loves marriage so much. This is why he loves faithfulness. It's all about Jesus, and it's all about him. Okay? Now, these people were weeping, as we'll see, and crying and bringing their tears before God because he wouldn't accept their sacrifices. For now, we'll get into that next week. We must continue as God's people to continue to trust Jesus as our Savior, to always repent of our sin. We're always remembering that his death and resurrection brings us into communion with him. Repentance and faith. The ability to trust Jesus as a savior in his death and resurrection. The ability to repent of our sin. Those are gifts from God. Scripture says, and so this whole entry into covenant and removal from it are Jesus' idea. He designed the bringing us into covenant and he designed the removing us from visible covenant. Again, true believers cannot ultimately break covenant with God. This is part of that agreement of the new covenant. And so Malachi, Malachi teaches us that God, that God loves marriage, and now we see why. Its point is the gospel. This is why God gave us rules on who to marry, 
and to break covenant marriage in the Old Testament, well, that helps see how serious it is to break covenant with Christ in the New Covenant or to attempt to break covenant. It can only mean that you weren't a true believer since the New Covenant promises that you can't break covenant with Christ, that this church and Savior union is forever. Again, Malachi leads us to Christ always, and that's beautiful. So this morning, let us praise and worship God the Father for calling us his sons and daughters. Let us worship him for creating us as his people. May we never deal treacherously with each other. May our marriage remain strong and faithful. May our marriages remain so. May they be godly and living pictures of the gospel. May we never forsake the people of God. And for you young people, we pray that God will provide for you a believing godly spouse for you so that you may honor God in marriage. And above all, church, may we praise Christ who brings us into union with himself for all eternity. And one day, the church and the Lord will be forever together in person, and we will have a marriage dinner, a marriage supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, because forever we are united to Christ, and nothing will will separate us from his love. For those of you listening online or in person, and you're not a believer in Christ, it may be that the Lord is calling you into union with him today. Jesus died for sinners to take their punishment. Jesus rose from the death, from the dead uh, to give them life so that they could forever be with him. He is the great reward of this union. The highest prize of the gospel is Jesus Christ himself. In order to be in union with Christ and covenant with him, you must turn from your sin and repent and turn to Jesus as Lord. You must stop ruling your own life. You must submit to Jesus as the boss of your life. He is your king. He is your Lord and master. Act like it. Turn to his rule. Trust him to save you from the wrath to come. Believe that he died and rose again to bring you to himself for all eternity. And if you refuse this salvation, if you refuse to be united to Christ, if you refuse to come into covenant with him, you will be cut off from God's blessing forever one day. You'll experience the deepest sorrow ever known to mankind. The scripture says there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth and eternal punishment from God in hell. And today is the day of salvation. Do not put it off any longer. Don't miss out on God's love and forgiveness. Come to him today. Be rescued. Be united to Christ. Repent and trust him to save you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father,